I'm Bianca Vivion, and this is Ask Viv. Welcome to episode 27. 27 is my absolute favorite number ever. It's my miracle number, which makes this so appropriate because it's Ramadan, and this is a very special time. And I find it's a very special time because the world is changing, and it's a scary time, and it's a confusing time, and there's nothing more grounding, more special, more centering than the time of Ramadan, where we forsake all pleasure in our bodies in order to tap into that place in our hearts and our minds where God can speak to us. So of course I made this episode about faith, and I've never done an episode about faith, and I feel like it's been such a long time coming because it's the thing that is actually most central to my life. And it's really funny because I, I often get these messages being like, what, what religion are you? I laugh about that with my friends in person because I'm always trying to convert somebody. I'm always evangelizing and, and leading people into the truth and the light of Islam. I mean, I don't care if you're like my most hood friends, my most academic friends, my most secular friends, you're not really going to come into my house without it being a, a prayer, a wish, a declaration of the goodness of God. And so I just find that that's really such an and marked difference between online personas and personalities. So I'm super, super excited about the episode that we have today for more than a few reasons. And other than saying, absolutely, God bless you, I am gonna get right into these questions because I know that's your favorite part. Dear Viv, what drew you to Islam? God. <laughs> I almost feel like this is a trick question because anybody that, as an adult, that practices religion or has a really deep set personality can tell you that you have to be pulled into it by the force of God itself. I don't think I would have gone willingly. I mean, religion is not compulsory and the Quran tells us that, but... God definitely set up my life in a way that after I was done sneaking and creeping and doing my thing on the side, it was an inevitability that I would come into my faith because I was so lost and I had run out of options and I had run out of strength and I had run out of intellect when God had come and got me. And I think it's funny because the amount of fervor that I employ now towards religiosity and trying to be righteous and trying to be holy before God came and got me, I was applying just as much fervor to doing wrong. I mean, if I was going to do wrong, I was going to do wrong. <laughs> if I was going to be angry, then I was going to try to enact violence. If I was going to starve, then I was going to steal. I had just as much excitement and animation towards sinning before I came into my faith, which I think is why when it pulled me in, it so enveloped me and is now such a central cornerstone of who I am and how I live my daily life. But as far as Islam in particular, it had honestly been such a long time coming. It's a love story that I would say began when I was 14 years old and I left the country for the very first time. I went to Bangladesh and I was studying climate change and cultural exchange and I went there 
in pursuit of education, but what I got was this all-encompassing experience of a world I had absolutely never known. And I now look back and I think, of course, the first time that I had ever had a passport stamped, it would have to have been in a Muslim country. And it was almost like, I always tell my life story as having started at 14 when I really started to become who I consider myself today. And so much of it begins with that trip, my first global experience that sparked a love of travel in me and a, and a love of other people that I had, I had never imagined just how influential that trip would have been on me. And it, it was crazy because when I was there, I would wake up to call to prayer. I would hear it right outside of my window, but at the time I had no clue what it was. And if you've ever been in a majority Muslim country and you hear the call to prayer that early in the morning, it sounds like something that comes out of the earth. It's not like hearing a clock from a church tower. It's it's like this sort of booming voice that seems to come from everywhere and nowhere. And I remember waking up to it when the entire household would be sleeping and just wondering, what is that noise? And it terrified me at first, but it became something that I would hear every day. And, and it was it was something of intrigue. It would be something that later on in life I would come to miss a lot. My experience living with that family, a Muslim family, I mean, mind you, I was living here in December into January. And it was wild because it was my first time ever away from home at Christmas, but I had become so resentful of Christmas because it was this very commercial capitalistic thing. And as a child, I would have these grandiose Christmases, my sisters and I with so many toys and so many things and this sort of just impenetrable childlike joy. But as my family fell into worse and worse financial straits, it would come to be that Christmas was just this sign of, of desolation and not having enough. And I didn't really feel any real spirituality towards Christmas. I would wake up on Christmas so resentful. So this was my first Christmas away from home. And the funny thing about being in a majority Muslim country in a place where nobody celebrates Christmas is everything was open. And this is one of the most dense countries in the world. So the, the streets were filled with people. Absolutely nothing was closed. I remember we went to get California fried chicken, which was like this sort of South Asian knockoff of KFC, except for the portions were way better and the food was also way better. We went to get California fried chicken. And then my host family took me to get a sari and I got my nose pierced. And I just went through this whole like South Asian cultural immersion thing. And when I got home, they gave me a jewelry box that was filled with Bengali wedding jewelry. And it was so kind. And I remember feeling the spirit of Christmas, this sort of community, this sort of this stretching out. They had outstretched themselves to me and they had bridged themselves to make me feel at home and make me feel like my faith despite the fact that I didn't have much of any, was respected and honored, even though these people had never celebrated Christmas in their lives. And I thought I had never seen, I had never experienced that kind of kindness from strangers. I had never known 
that kind of just love of principle and righteousness towards your fellow man and respect for faith because even growing up in America, Muslims were so othered and I grew up, you know, in the center of 9-11 and seeing the way that it was an us versus them thing, not just for Christians, but for Jewish people as well. And so to see that that was not reciprocated on the other side of the world, that they saw me, this young black American girl who was Christian and they extended themselves to me, I wanted so much to emulate that. And I still have the diary that I kept during that entire trip. And I remember talking about how it was the best Christmas ever and how I didn't understand like how these people were, but I so wanted to carry it with me always. And that was really the beginning of my experiences with Islam. But it would come to maturation when I got to college, when I turned 18, because I would start to study the Quran in school as a secular literary text. And it was so much like when I met Morrison, it was so much like when I met Baldwin, it was a love affair from the very first page. I mean, it drew me in. And I've, it's funny because now I'm reading all these early texts about the earliest followers of Islam and about how they came into Islam. And it was so much of my experience where you hear it and it sounds like poetry, but it's something that's so much deeper and more primordial and it moves you from this place on the inside that I had never known. And it awoke something in me that I had never felt before. And I was being pulled in through this text and I was listening to it and studying it in a secular fashion, but it was moving me and answering questions that I had about history and myself. And I was loving it. I was really, really loving it, but it's so hard to enter into faith without a sort of guidance. And that's when God sent me someone who would become one of my best friends, Hiva Khan, this young Pakistani queer Muslim girl that I met my sophomore year of college just sitting on the stoop of a brownstone in Harlem and she invited me into her dorm apartment space for tea and while we were there I just I was so I mean anybody that's ever met Hiba she just has this light about her I mean she literally has this light and I wanted that light. I had never seen somebody move through a space with so much ease and grace and lightness. And I was in this very stressful environment at the time. Columbia was so daunting and so haunting in a way and just draining and sad and anxious. And I was so used and had become so accustomed to that energy that seeing this person that had this ease about them, about life, this everything would be okay type attitude, this nothing had to rush everything, all things in due time. I wanted that and I and I aspired to that. And the more that I spent time with this person, when, when people would come into her house, because it wouldn't just be me, it would not just be tea and whatever food, it would be it would be that and Islam. It would be her reading the Quran, it would be her referencing the Prophet and telling me these stories of things I didn't know and the way that Muslims live and she would explain why she would get dressed before she would go to Juma. Like there were so many things that I would say like wow like this person really has this way of living life, this lifestyle. She really drew me in and became a guide of understanding what it meant to be Muslim on a principled level. As far as what our responsibilities were to our fellow man, I mean she created this space that it seemed like there was always enough and I had never been in a place like that. I grew up in a place 
where it just seemed like so much individualism and so much focus on lack and people were always harping on what they didn't have and what they couldn't do and who they couldn't be and seeing someone talk about how God was all sufficient seeing someone draw you into a place where there was always enough for everybody and yet with that gift also engendering a responsibility that you were required to bring what you had and it wasn't money it was just in the way of knowledge in the way of joy in the way of even my stories my struggles my sorrows i was allowed to bring that and it was a space that always made room and i became a co-conspirator in this sort of world that we were building in the middle of Harlem where we would begin to throw parties and we would begin to hold space and I would begin to invite people and it would be my job to get the desserts and her job to get the tea and I would start coming with my own experiences of things that were happening in my own life and Islam and we had different sects there were Sunni Muslims and Shias and Sufis and atheists and Jews and it was a place where we would talk about faith with young people in a way that is so now i see mirrors how the original islam came about of just being drawn together by a love of truth but also just people that were tired of having experience without meaning being tired of having relationships that drained me and i didn't know why tired of walking through life with this sense of aimlessness and it was then that i walked into that space and it was the first time that it wasn't because of accolades or resume or looks or anything but people that said you belong here and you're home here and i want you here and god wants you here and it was like church it was like a mosque but it it was just a feeling of being unburdened it was a magical time in my life and that's really that's how i came into islam and then afterward i would have to go on a journey a solitary journey with just myself of learning my text and learning my religion and funny enough i actually was going to do hajj this year i had plans on being in saudi arabia for these months um but obviously allah had different plans yeah it drew me in and it became it became literally everything to me it became it became the measure of self it became how i saw my visions for my life it became what i wanted my family to look like the household that i was going to build in the future it became the measure of everything to me it became the measure of what a good friend was it became my measure for loyalty and honesty and worth it became my sense of self vigilance my discipline it changed my eating my sleeping my meditation habits it changed the way i interacted with the internet it changed my language it changed my relationship completely with my family and every time that i talk about healing and honesty and getting over trauma and everything it's always everything i've ever told you all on this show has been through the lens of islam And so whatever draws you in here is the same power that same force that drew me in. So it it's a love affair unlike any other and it's been it's been the gift of my entire life. Dear Viv, do you identify with any particular religion? When I read your New York Times piece about the left needing organized religion, I assumed you were a Christian, but I also realized that you've spoken about celebrating Ramadan. I'm Muslim, but I made a very pointed decision to write that essay. The left needs organized religion, not from the point of an identitarian as this is my experience. 
but as an intellectual of this is what is best for America as it is progressing. And I wrote it because one, I don't think that I would ever use the New York Times as a platform to talk about Islam for obvious reasons of their readership, but also because you're addressing the epicenter, the intellectual epicenter of the Western world. You're talking about literally tens of millions of readers, many of whom, if they're not agnostic or atheist outright, are practicing Judaism and Christianity and so if you want to make an argument that is effective, meaning that it reaches people's hearts and therefore penetrates their minds, then you need to do it in speaking a language that's familiar to those people. And I find that one of the biggest disservices that media and history and just general inability to read our lack of literacy over the last hundred years has done is that it's created this east versus west islam versus christianity versus judaism dynamic that is so ahistorical because really islam if you read the quran it encompasses the gospel, it encompasses the Talmud, the Torah, and you can't actually effectively read the Quran having not read the gospel and the Talmud. You just can't because there is so many references to Jesus, Mary, every single prophet, Moses, Abraham. It's completely intrinsic. It's the best of Christianity and the best of Judaism encompassed in our book. And so for me to speak the language of talking about the gospel or talking about Christianity is not a separate issue from Islam, it's intrinsic to Islam. That being said, as a writer, when you want to be an effective writer and address your audience, you have to speak the language that they know. And this is not just as an American, but as a black person. When I address black people and I talk about our progression as a race, and I'm talking about our history as Black Americans and ties to slavery, I'm always going to be talking in a language that's addressing our own evangelical rhetorical traditions because our struggle is a struggle of the Black church. The majority of Black Americans are not only Christian, but they are Protestant and a lot of them are Baptist, and a lot of them are Pentecostal. And so that's a language that I grew up learning, not just in a spiritual context in Sunday school, but really in an academic context. So many of the classes that I took in school were about black evangelical traditions and was about protest language in the language of spirituality. So that is the thread that I always choose to write in because that's the one that's going to directly address and be heard by the people that I'm speaking to, and it's always going to be in a language that they receive in their hearts. And for me, that is, that's my duty as a Muslim, and that is my responsibility as a thinker, and that's my responsibility with a platform. When you're talking to America, you have to be, if you're talking about religion, you have to be addressing it using Christianity and Christian dogma and Christian principle because you can only judge responsibility based on principle. If I say that America has failed in her religious responsibilities, then it has to be based on Christian principle because America calls itself a Christian nation. If I say that Israel has failed in their responsibility 
responsibilities as a religious nation, then I have to be talking about Judaism because Israel calls themselves a Jewish nation. If I'm talking about the failure of Iran or of the Ayatollah to uphold Muslim principles, it's because these people call themselves an Islamic state. It's sort of like if I judge my father as a bad father, then it has to be based on the principles of fatherhood. It can't be based on the principles of him being a husband or a worker. I have to say, if you didn't take care of me, if you didn't come home, if you didn't teach me how to read, if I say that you failed in that responsibility, it has to be based on a set of principles that are based on what you say you are. America calls itself a Christian nation. And so I wrote that as America has failed based on the principles of Christianity, based on the notion of brotherhood, based on the meek will inherit the earth, take care of the poor, pray for your fellow man, be slow to anger, quick to forgive, do not lie, cheat, steal, kill. These sorts of principles that are foundational to Christianity and Judeo-Christianity that America is constantly using to enact violence on the rest of the world is constantly using to justify its position as this city upon a hill type nation, then of course, if I'm addressing the failures of that principle, it has to be based on what America says it is. That is a different conversation than what America really is, which as we can see is really a nation that worships at the feet of capital. People who are effectively godless, who worship at the shrine of their own opinions and believe that if there's any God-given right, it's the God-given right to amass as much capital as possible without any responsibility towards your fellow man, any sense of righteousness, any sense of communalism, really fuck the poor, the hungry, the tired, And that's a whole different conversation. But for me to inspire people to remember the radical place that religion has had in our protest movements and our progressive movements, then it has always been a conversation of Judaism and Christianity. Because for every single Malcolm X that you had, you had 10 Howard Thurmans. For every single imam that you had leading a revolution of righteousness, you have 10,000 pastors and preachers. And it's time, given that those people still hold so much weight, that their words, that their money, that their influence still has so much weight in our communities, it's time to hold them to account for the principles that they claim in the name of God to represent in this nation. And why I'm so proud is that it's not about addressing the mosque and the imams of America because Muslims feed more people in this country. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars are donated directly to the poor because we don't pay tithes to church, are donated directly to institutions and organizations that help the poor, that help the hungry, the battered, the downtrodden. We feed the hungry. We work in principle. We work in tandem. You don't hear about top 10 richest imams in America, 70 richest rabbis. 
you're hearing about Christian pastors and preachers who are amassing capital in the name of God, health, wealth, and prosperity preaching, where we have never seen a time of more wealth and equality, that we've never seen a time of more strife and struggle and depression of the will of the masses. And it is completely and utterly insulting to the gospel of the prophet Jesus, peace be unto him, To do that in the name of God is something that has to be directly addressed and it was time to talk to America and address it as a Christian nation that it still purports itself to be using the language of Christianity and Christian dogma and of course using my own experiences with the Christian church at its worst and at its best because that was a world that I grew up in. Dear Viv, how do I trust that what I'm giving up and all the emotions that arise from letting go is truly worth it and ultimately serving me? I'm realizing I have a hard time letting go, and as someone with attachment issues that I'm now working on, how can I trust that I'm not being left behind? When do you know if you're actually being set apart or positioned for something greater? I will start with one of my favorite short poems by Lucille Clifton called The Lesson of the Falling Leaves. The lesson of the falling leaves, the leaves believe such letting go is love, such love is faith, such faith is grace, such grace is God. I agree with the leaves. I so believe that the art of faith is letting go. And it's something that I was not good at when I was younger. I had so many issues with abandonment. The art of the world is trying to cling on to every single thing and try to find something lasting. I mean, it's every single romantic film in Western genres. It's every single famous literary book. It is the notion of capitalism, is how do I make happiness permanent? How do I make this life last forever? And so if that is what being worldly is all about, trying to find lasting pleasure and gripping onto things and trying to create superhero immortality out of yourself and the life around you, then being faithful and being religious is about learning and embracing and even finding joy in letting things go. I never thought I'd be in that place in my life. Even, for example, the last apartment that I had, I was so in love with my apartment. I had the best view, the best rooftop, the best everything. I just loved that apartment and I thought, I'm going to be in this apartment until I go and buy a house. Like, this will be the apartment that I come into my wealth, that I come into the height of my career. This is where I want to come home to in the best times of my life. And really, very randomly, all of a sudden, the woman that owned it was like, I'm going to renovate this and I want you to move out. And if it had not been for Islam, if I hadn't thought back on the trajectory of my life, that every single time that I left somewhere, I entered into somewhere better, I would have clung on to this experience and refused to leave. And so funny, what ended up happening is I got the opportunity to buy an apartment in the same exact building that had more space at a cheaper rate. And that is so much of faith. You begin to see that these experiences that you have in life, even the most mournful and grieving experiences of pain and loss and suffering, you begin to see that they're not random. 
that so much of the naturalness and the ability to let go is tethered to the ability to grow up and to grow into a destiny. It was after I turned 18, it was after I had seen some of the hardest years of my young life, of all of this stress and strife. It was after I had buried friends and really gone through a hard ass time that I've begun to understand that it wasn't just me letting go so I could get something. It's not always like the apartment example. It was me letting go so I could become someone. I left good relationships. I mean, I had some good ass boyfriends that were loving and compassionate and cared for me and listened to me and were really down for me. And it was as much confusing to me as it was confusing to them why I walked away from those relationships. But there was something pulling me. Sometimes there's something pulling you, that little voice inside, that still voice that says, let this go. And sometimes it's not so that you can receive something more. And I think that's that's where Islam so differs from Christianity and a salvation that says, do this and God will give you double for your trouble or if you suffer for a while then you'll get this and this and this and that we believe in Islam that with loss you garner not just a replacement for your things but you garner humility and piety and peace of mind with the reality of loss that is intrinsic to being human it is the one thing that every single person on earth is guaranteed is loss. Even if the only loss you ever face is through the loss of your own life. And it's because we believe that there's a hereafter, that there's a heaven, that there's a second lifetime, that we strive in this life without harping on loss in a way that is crippling to so many people who are faithless. And you ask, how do you know? How do you know that it's worth it? That is what faith is. Faith is a hope that it will be worth it. It's a hope that it will get better. And it's not a complacent hope. It's a revolutionary hope that what we have to gain is so much more than what we have to lose. That is the revolutionary spirit of faith is to say that whatever I lose now, even be it my life, if there's something to be built that's more righteous, that's better, that's more peaceful, that's more loving, then it is a worthy sacrifice each and every time, no matter the depth of that loss. I think that it's harping on the loss itself that you began to really gamble your sanity. Because if you really start thinking, I cannot believe I lost this thing, then you're going to get stuck in a state of perpetual grief and you never get to that place where you see who you can be on the other side of pain. Everything I swore I could not live without, not only did I live without it, but I found out who I was and she was better and stronger and more sound-minded and happier, and actually happier than the person that swore they could not live without so many things. And I find now that I am so thankful and I consider the biggest blessing in my life is that when I was a child and I moved around so much, I had this notion of loss because I said, I don't know where home is. 
And now wherever I am feels like home. So much so that even my friends, when they say I'm coming home, they always mean to my house, wherever it is. And it's not because it's a physical place, but it's because when you build that thing inside of you, when you find what is truly indispensable, which is a soul and a principle and a, an oomph, a substance that is completely indestructible, that is stronger. And when that substance is revealed, then you're always home and you can always let things go. You can make peace. I never thought I'd be able to make peace with the death of loved ones. I never knew that there was life after death. I never knew that I could bury a friend or bury a grandparent and make peace with who they were and where they were. I never knew that I could let go of certain lovers and think that the world had ended. I never thought that I could be single for this long or in a state of solitude for this long and not literally go crazy. I never thought I could see my bank account on $3.50 and not move to steal or kill or, you know, take myself to the edge of action because I never thought I would be this okay with letting shit go. And it's faith that did that. It's faith that built that in me. You become more and more okay with it because you began to like the person that's okay with letting go. Because a lot of the things that we hate the most in ourselves, I know that some of us have been in relationships and when it's all over, we don't even hate that it's over as much as the fact that we hate that we can't let it go. There are people that we know are bad for us, friends that we know are toxic, relationships that we know are toxic, and we harp on them and then we get angry at ourselves because you're thinking, why can you not let this go even though it was bad for you? The more faith that you have in self, the more faith that you get in life as a reflection of spiritual faith, the more faith you have that everything is actually working out for your own good, that every step is ordered to a greater end that is going to be joyful and is going to be calm and peaceful if you deal with it well, if you actually move through it well and you move through it with a graciousness. And that's why I so love that poem when Clifton says, such love is faith and such faith is grace and such grace is God, meaning that letting go is intrinsic to God. Putting things in the hands of a power that has more understanding, that sees the end from the beginning, somebody who is not surprised by anything, a force, a oneness, an entity that is completely all-knowing so that you don't have to be. It's why I can let it go. It's why I was literally packing up the stuff in this apartment to move out. And my mother kept calling me and saying, but where are you gonna go? But where are you gonna go? And I said, I don't know, mom, God will figure it out. And so of course, when I called her and said I had this better place, this bigger place, this brighter place, and it was just right there, right where it had always been waiting for me, not just to have it, but to own it. The greatest expressions of my faith have never been in these big miraculous gestures. It's always been knowing when to let go and knowing when to hold on. And you ask, how do you know? I pray for discernment. So much of prayer. When you pray and when you have 
prayer, you're not telling God anything new. God is self-sufficient and has all information. When you pray, it's saying, which way should I go? It's saying, do I stay or do I go? It's saying, do I go up and fight or do I remain steadfast at peace? It's saying, is this my fight? Is this not my fight? Is this my relationship? Is this not my relationship? Is this my job or not my job? Do I stay here? Do I move across the country? That's discernment. And people wonder why I can move so quickly progressing in life. I would say that my extremely young age as commiserate to my success is a direct result of my ability to let things go. And at this point now, it's funny because the deeper and more spiritual I am, the less sentimental I become. There are fights that I used to be willing to die on a hill for every single point and opinion I made. And now I will let things go so fast. I'll say, you know what? It's not worth it. It's not worth my peace of mind. It's not worth whatever tomorrow brings trying to hold on to yesterday. These are things that I've learned with faith and I can tell you that it'll either be directly to your benefit to let it go and if it's not, it will come back to you in a better, stronger way. I've never lost anything that some people I thought that I had let go that came back with such a force that they might as well have not left in the first place. And that's a blessing too because Even when we let things go that are truly ours, when they come back to us, they have a way, God has a way, life has a way of redeeming time, of redeeming time in a way that makes us feel like we never lost much at all. Dear Viv, when your intuition has been clouded, how do you start to rebuild and trust your mind again? I pray. I find that what's funny is that I am so often when people celebrate me or compliment me, it is based on intellect and a sort of surety of self. But in my day-to-day practice, what that looks like is so much confusion, so much double-mindedness, so much internal duplicity that I have to pray. And I love Islam for praying five times a day because it's not just pray when you get up or pray when you go to sleep. It's literally, I can fuck up so badly by 10 a.m. and by 10 p.m. have reached complete clarity and gotten over whatever it was that had absolutely messed up my day at 10 a.m. Because when you pray five times a day, you're constantly resetting, you're constantly tapping into your intention, you're constantly asking for direction, you're constantly renewing your sense of intuition. So there isn't that sense of cloudedness because you have such a pointed intention of saying, which way should I go? What should I do? How should I be? What should I say? And not only that, you cleanse yourself constantly of, I'm sorry for what I did do. I'm sorry for what I did say. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And it's nice for me because the better and more intense I got at prayer, the less I not only had to rely on my own faulty intuition, but the less I had to seek so many different voices because I find, and this is funny because this is one of the questions that I get a lot on Ask Viv, is like, how do I find a voice of my own that's separate from the voice of my friends? And it's one that's so 
markedly important right now in this time of isolation and solitude because prayer is how I learned to trust my own voice. Ironically, because it was through prayer that I was able to discern the difference between my own voice and the voice of God. Because when you go through life with no time of meditation and no time of contemplation and no time of solitude, you're mistaking the voice in your head for the voice of God. And that voice is often super discouraging, has no idea what it's doing, is extremely judgmental, dirty, like crass. And then you have the voice of friends who have projected their opinions about you, their opinions about your life, etc., etc., and tapping into intention and going into that place of solitude, into that place of prayer, seeking spirituality as a foremost priority in my life meant becoming singularly minded and knowing the difference between when I was clear and could exact my will and when I was confused. And part of really even enacting intuition is not making choices when your intuition is clouded. That's a big thing. I don't make choices when I'm angry. I don't make choices when I'm sad. I don't make choices when I'm tired. And it tells me that's the time when I feel those emotions, when I am in those states, that's when I know I need to either rest because sleeping is massively important to clearing intuition. It's when I pray and it's when I seek time to be alone. I'm not a person that you can get to answer the phone for whatever reason. If I'm not feeling it, if I'm not there fully, if I'm not available to be an effective voice or a present voice, I don't answer the phone. I don't answer text messages. I don't answer emails. And I think that even though it would seem like this is obvious, so many of you are so obsessive when it comes to communication and being consistently tapped into the world that you can hardly ever access your intuition because you're always mediated by someone else's voice, someone else's face, someone else's opinion, images constantly of being in the world, and you're never gonna get into yourself if you're always in the world. If you're never alone in your mind, in your body, in your home, you're not going to be able to hear that still and clear voice that tells you which way to go. You're not going to be able to hear the voice of God Every single Abrahamic religious text, even non-Abrahamic religious texts, when you're talking about the Bhagavad Gita, when you're talking about Confucius and Buddha, when you're talking about Islam, Judaism, when you're talking about Moses and Ibrahim, you're talking about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be unto them, you're talking about solitude. You're talking about people that spent ridiculous amounts of time in caves, on hills, you're talking about sacrificing Ishmael, when you're talking about so many quintessential spiritual stories, you're almost always talking about somebody who had to venture off by themselves to hear the voice of God, to enact will that would then change the course of the world. So if you're somebody who doesn't like being alone, can't be alone, can't truly be alone, I'm not talking about being alone in a room with your phone, I mean really alone, alone, alone with yourself, alone with your body, alone with your mind, then you're always going to have trouble tapping into intuition. But once you master 
really embracing a state of solitude, you can always clear your intuition because intuition only gets clouded by the entrance of the world, the entrance of voices and media. And there's times where I just actively, I mean, I used to be such a news buff because at the beginning of my career, I was a journalist. And so much of that was me being like, what's going on in the world? What's going on in the neighborhood? I wanted to know everything at all times. I used to be a a news junkie. Like when I was in college, I had subscriptions to The Economist, Bloomberg, Business Week, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, (laughs) Vogue, every single thing I wanted to be so tapped in because I thought that that was what was going to give me an edge in understanding culture and having this sort of voice. And it's actually been the complete opposite. It's been the complete opposite where the best of my creative intuition comes when I have no interaction with the world whatsoever. I feel now like when I'm in my creative, intuitive state, I'm like the great Michelangelo who said, I saw an angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. That's what I feel now is that when I'm most in tune with my intuitive voice and the voice of God, that is when I'm also at my best creative self. I'm at my kindest self. I'm at my most helpful, my most compassionate my most loving and even funny enough when it comes time like it'll be when I feel my most sexy my most beautiful it's like focusing on a good meal when I'm in tune with actually the state of eating when I'm actually entrenched in a meal it's when I'm actually enjoying food it's it's no difference when you're actually in a present state when you're saying how can I be more in the here and now that is when you're going to hear clearly Funny enough, and I have to say this explicitly, when you really into it, be prepared to come start crying because sometimes when you actually tap into your intuition, you realize that you're very sad. And I think that's why a lot of people avoid states of solitude and avoid tapping into that place inside of themselves because sometimes you tap into it, sometimes you hear your inner voice and it's broken. Sometimes it's a still small voice and it's not saying namaste, be at peace, ashe. Sometimes you hear that voice and it's saying we have a lot of work to do. And probably the times when I'm most frustrated, crying or really angry is when that voice tells me, Bianca, you're dead wrong. Or when the voice tells me, you're very, very lost. Or when the voice tells me that was a terrible decision, you now have to go and reconcile. But I rather be in tune with that truth so that I can move on or let go or exact my will than to hold on to the falsehood or the comfort of the world outside of my own intuition and be led to my own destruction. So be still, said the prophet Jesus. Be still, seek peace seek peace. Dear Viv, I feel like I've lost my beliefs and my faith. I grew up a Muslim and now that I'm growing into my own person, I don't really know how to navigate my beliefs. It's like I'm slowly losing faith and I really don't know what to do. Any suggestions? Now this is going to really sound crazy, but I want you to entertain the idea, as scary as it may be, that you never had any faith to begin with. And I think that as radical as that sounds, and it's not 
insulting, but really it should inspire you, is that you are at the beginning of a journey of discovering your own individual faith. It's kind of like there's this book that I love called All About Love by Bell Hooks. And there is a really quintessential chapter at the beginning where she says, in order to understand love, we have to entertain the notion that love was not something that we learned in our households growing up. We may have learned affection, compassion, empathy, whatever, but we did not learn love because love is something that lends towards the spiritual growth of a person. It's intentional. It has a definition. And we lived in this sort of amorphous, undefined space that our parents called love. You grew up in a Muslim household, meaning that you had Juma, that you had Eid, that you had Ramadan, that you had Zakat, that you had these, you had these traditions. But if you have faith, it means you have a one-to-one individual relationship with God and your parents cannot give you that. If you don't know what to do, then start with the fundamentals, the gifts that they gave you in having given you the Quran. You can read the Quran and you can find out for yourself. You can find God really for the first time. And I feel like raising your children religiously is not to impart faith on them because that's something that only God can give. My One of my favorite imams says, Faith is not a given, it's given. But what they do is they give you a principle of where to start looking. With me, I began looking in the Bible for faith. And when I didn't find it there, I began to search elsewhere and I began to find God in the Quran. But I knew to start with the Bible is because that was the fundamental text of how I grew up. But my parents couldn't give me belief any more than they can give me talent anymore. It's like you can take your kid to 10,000 gymnastics classes the same way you can take your kid to church, but it's not going to make them Gabby Douglas any more than it's going to make them a Christian. This is a journey that you have to take on your own. And it is such a beautiful journey, but it is a hard journey. It's so funny because there are so many people who belong to the orthodoxy of religion and practice religion and shrewd themselves in cloth and don't eat certain things and don't work on the Sabbath. And they follow all of these principal actions of religion, but have no faith. And the irony is, is that every Abrahamic religion, it says in the hereafter, after you die, when you get to those pearly gates, you're going to be judged on belief and belief alone. And that's the irony is that if you live your life with a whole system of religion and no faith, you might as well have just been stripping and smoking and doing your thing on the side because the measure of our faith is belief. And that's a journey that every single person has to take on their own. And you're not gonna find it in your household Christmas party or your Eid celebration or in the words and prayers of your mother. It's not going to be her faith that gets you through this lifetime. It's going to be your own and you're gonna have to know God for yourself. And I find what's so frustrating about the world now is that with liberalism, people are encouraged to forego the faith that they were raised with altogether because God is so conflated with the policing of our parents. And when we think of God, we think judgmental, we think 
couldn't stay out past 10 o'clock. We think hates the way I dress, hates the way I look, hates my sexuality. We don't think compassionate, merciful, all good. I had to rediscover God for myself because I was raised in a church that told me that God was Jesus and Jesus was essentially white and characterized to me in my mind, which I viewed as a weak figure. I was so relieved to come into a faith that told me that God was not a man because I don't care if he was the best man, the best looking, the best talking, the best, best man I've ever heard of. I didn't want to worship a man at all. I wasn't down for that. And I had to go through that journey for myself because even if you do continue in Islam, even if you do pursue the faith of Islam, because that's your foundational faith, it's not going to be the same Islam as your parents. And I think that's why it was such a beautiful thing, that time I talked about in college, coming together with all of these people of different faiths to talk about faith with young people, because I realized what we were doing was not just communing and creating fellowship and talking about God. What we were doing was discovering the relevance of Islam and the relevance of spirituality for ourselves, because every generation has to have a faith for itself that's going to be relevant to that generation. And it's completely idiosyncratic. I need a different Islam to deal with a plague and a depression and wealth inequality and police brutality than my forefathers needed a different Islam to deal with American chattel slavery than my ancestors needed to deal with the civil rights movement. I'm going to need a different Islam to raise my children and understand what it means to be a wife than Khadijah was going to need to be a wife to the prophet. These are the thing that's so nice about faith is that it's so revolutionary and it changes and it's ever relevant. And by seeking it out for yourself and understanding your own text and creating a relationship with God for yourself, you began to see the relevance and the beauty of addressing everyday issues. You begin to have courage in the face of seemingly new and insurmountable problems because there is something that is ancient, there is something inherited, there is this thread that is eternal, but there's also something that is so timely, that is so much about the zeitgeist, so much on the edge of culture and the edge of understanding. And it's finding that balance as young people growing up. I just encourage you to not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and say, I've lost my faith, as much as to say, I'm at the beginning of my journey with faith and I've never been here. Because really all that being raised in a certain belief system is, is just submission. And the Quran tells us, don't say you have faith, say that you've submitted and faith shall be imparted unto you. And so much of the journey of actually getting faith is just saying, I'm opened. I'm open to being made over. I'm open to being made new. I'm open to being made whole. And then welcoming that ridiculously transformative and powerful experience to become the person that you are going to be. And I think that that is a wonderful thing and it's not a sad thing. And there was a time that I just had to fundamentally ask myself, what do you believe? Is Jesus God? Things that I never thought that I would question. And 
when I did question them as scary as it was and as apathetic as I felt, a similar tone to how you seem now, it was the beginning of what would be the greatest journey of my lifetime. It was the beginning of the discovery of myself, of the building of a new home and the entrance of a new world order within my interior universe. And that's that's all the time that we have for today. But I told you all that 27 is my favorite number. It's my miracle number. And so it's only appropriate to mark this episode doing something that I've never, ever done before. Something new, something exciting. And I'm going to read you all a poem that I wrote right as I was really beginning to come into Islam. I would say this is my sophomore year of college. And I wrote this poem and it was about this sort of force that was ensuing in my life. And I feel like it's very relevant to so many of you who seem to be at the beginning of this wonderful journey. And I'm going to read it to you. It's called, I Love Him. I love him or I love it. I can't name it, I can't touch it. I just know that when it gripped me, my heart told me to trust it. It's opaque but unconfusing. I'm unsure just what it is that thing that when I leave myself always shows me I've been missed. It never asks me where I've been or judges me for where I've gone. He just tells me that I must come back for the love of love, I must keep on. I know you're thinking, oh, that's sweet. Is you talking about your man? No, but when it comes to love, he's the only reason that I can. Sometimes a soft caress, other times it slaps me in my face. Sometimes it writes my two left feet and takes me out of my own way. I can't even do him right in prose because I just don't have the words. I just know when I was fading fast, he yelled, you must emerge. And when my heart was paralyzed, stuck in that hellish groove, it was that strange sweet something that told my body move. I'm not quite getting there, I could never be, I only pray you get the gist, the power of that something that reminds you you exist. And he doesn't have a body, I don't know if he has a name, I just know when I did most wrong, he called mine just the same. It didn't matter, I was stupid, he ain't care, I couldn't spell, he didn't mind, I once took refuge in the deepest nights of hell. He done rocked me out my lonely to remind me that I matter, and not for my girlish beauty or my hearty-bellied laughter, not the magic of my deepest joy, nor the mesmerizing of my stride, but the strength in me that screamed, girl, keep on when I most wanted to die. I'm not talking about a pretty gospel, no, this is the thing that broke the chain. When my frame was hanging off the nail, it called out to me, sustain. I'm not talking about a nuptial, forget a diamond ring. I'm talking about a strange that knew this evil and still loved this ghetto thing. I'm talking about life, the thing of life deep inside my breast that would not let me go when I longest held my breath. I'm talking something that sees you clear, calls your name and all your dirty, that tells you you are good and special, but that ain't the reason that you're worthy. We are forged from shine we cannot see, a gold we cannot sell, the last white knuckle grip that grabs the bucket out the well. 
It made me want tomorrow for the first time I am seeing myself in old, took the scrap metal of my yesteryears and fashioned out a soul. You can't see it coming when you most need it and you didn't even know it knew ya. A mystery how it draws out your chest, a crystal hallelujah. And I won't yet call it God because I don't want to disappoint you, but the way it holds me up, it's nothing short of an anointing. Sometimes it's a scratchy scream and sometimes it's a song, but hell, it always sings the same for the love of love. You must keep on. I'm Bianca Vivion, and if you ever need anything at all, you can always ask Viv. Yeah, yeah, there I go. There it is. This uh-huh. is something special. Observation Marbles and frights and strange delight Attributes, properties, disciplines and novelties Ecstatic patterns in the calendar design Wilderness tours guided by and for the blind Cool ruler standing still sweating through the shade He knew those lights only grew bright to fade Dead wrong pageantry, lottery and games Sleight of hand provided by extravagant and fake The carnival till bell, the hustle for the age The clutch what they covet, what must they give away Who was uninvited, who was asked to come and stay surprised It's your life, it's your business anyway, so please Part these in such curious minds Peace, safe passage, precious time Hither and gone, the day of days Yomu Kiyom, this tiny stone Illuminated by a star fall Not only stars so large, many more To make our largest stars show small Furthermore, the end is not the end No stop but a pause And what we can witness isn't all that is it all Custom mocked over scotch and pork chops The passion expansion, the order of the random See the dreamers, see the sleepers Wild Eureka, sweet Jesus and life on earth Seek heaven first, support in this world